0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host Nellie Bailey. Coming up, What kind of impact did the long history of racial and political repression have on today's black movement? We'll hear an assessment from an esteemed black scholar and Black Agenda Reports co-founder Margaret Kimberly talks about her new book on U.S. presidents and their relations with black America from George Washington to the present.
0: But first, The United States played a huge role in the recent military coup in Bolivia, where the hemisphere's first Native American government was overthrown and replaced with a white, far-right Christian regime. The Organization of American States, or OAS, sided with the coup plotters, who claimed that there were major defects in October's election, and which President Evo Morales was seeking a third term. Jake Johnson is with the Center for Economic and Political Research in Washington. He did a study of what actually happened in the election
2: it's important to put this in sort of a broader context right where the OAS and its electoral observation missions play a really important role in the hemisphere right and yet they've operated with very little accountability yet they have a tremendous amount of impact in terms of these electoral crises that you see every once in a while in the hemisphere now i'm sure obviously you know you and many of your listeners are familiar with some of the OAS actions in Haiti back in the earlier 2000s as well as 2010 and some of the really problematic actions that their observer missions participated in. And so, you know, this is an issue that relates to Bolivia, but it's an issue that relates to the entire hemisphere. And this is extremely important, right? So not just for Bolivia, but again, for the entire hemisphere. And so in Bolivia, what we saw happen was on the day of the election, the evening of the election, they announced preliminary results with about 84% of the vote counted. And at that point, Evo Morales was just below the 10 percentage point margin he needed to win the election outright in the first round. And the system, the results transmission system was suspended. And the next day, it came back on with additional votes having been counted. And it showed Avo Morales clearing the 10 percent margin and, you know, indicating that if the official result process, which was happening on a slower time frame with more verification processes, matched that, it looked like he would win in the first round. And What the OAS did that day, so October 21st, the day after the election, was they put out a press release that called this a drastic and inexplicable change in the trend that undermined the validity and credibility of the election. And we've been watching elections all over the world and the U.S. And many people are aware, right, it depends where those outstanding votes might come from, right? If it comes from a heavy Republican district, if you're looking at the U.S. election, right, where all the outstanding votes come from you know, that the results may change as the final votes are counted. And that's exactly what we saw when we looked at the data in Bolivia, was that the votes that were counted after this stoppage simply were coming from areas of the country that had already shown a clear pattern in favor of Morales. In other words, this was just a result of geography and certain votes being counted later in the process, and not some nefarious act of fraud.
1: And that was consistent with previous elections where Morales's support, which is largely rural, came in later.
2: Yeah, so for example, in the 2006 constitutional referendum, which Again, Evo lost that referendum, his preferred outcome. You know, you saw the the preliminary results with about 83 percent reported and then the final results. And the shift there was actually greater in 2016 than we saw in 2019. You know, as electoral observers, clearly this information would be available to their experts and to their team. And so I think that's it's really important, right, because obviously what happened afterwards, you saw a tremendous amount of conflict in the country and protests. And eventually resulting in the exiling and the coup d'etat against David Morales himself in early November. I think it all goes back to sort of, again, that, that first press release and what, you know, there have been a number of reports that have come out since and, and that we've continued to analyze. But I think this is what's really important this is narrative of fraud that was really embedded within, you know, it was reported all over the world, that this was how the fraud was done, right? And when they ended up putting out a final report to sort of show this, what we saw was that there were tremendous problems with the security system of the computer and the IT technology. And again, that's why the OAS was brought into this situation to do this special audit and to provide clarity around the situation. And yet there's very little in the the report about the results themselves and quite a bit about the procedural issues. Right. And I think that's a really important distinction. I mean, it's being used, the OAS findings are being used to justify everything that's happened after this coup. And yet their own findings actually are not that there was some massive fraud, though that is how it's being interpreted. And I think that's what's really important is just to look at what's actually in this report and analyze what's actually in this report.
1: And you were prepared to confront the OAS with your counter report with permission from the Mexican government.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, I can run through, you know, some of the main findings. I mean, I think, again, the OAS has continued to maintain that there was this inexplicable change in trend. And now they changed their argument a little bit in their final report, which said, actually, it wasn't a change in trend after the results were stopped at 84%. There was a change in trend amongst the final 5% of the vote counted. But in the report, they actually provide a data table with all of the data that they're using for their analysis of this final vote count. And if you just do, I mean, basic addition and subtraction here, right, looking at the data that they provide, AVO's vote marge vote share actually decreases in the final 5% counted as compared to the 5% directly before it, right? So they're continuing to insist on this idea of a, of a trend change, despite their own data not even showing that. And as another example, they've mentioned the fact that tally sheets, these are the records, the physical records of the vote that took place in each voting table throughout the country, about 35,000 of them. And the OAS says that the final votes that were counted, the last 5%, all had an overwhelmingly high number of observations. basically corrections written into the bottom by the poll workers. And this was a sign that there was something fishy, right? And this is one of the you know, main parts of the report. Now, when we looked at the actual election itself, we realized that this is actually exactly how the system is designed. If there's a question about verification or if there are these corrections written in, those are generally put to the side and counted later. So rather than being evidence of something nefarious, it actually looks like evidence that the process was being followed. Right? And so as we went through this report, we just noticed a number of these issues where whether it was a problem with how things were presented or obscuring other information that runs counter to the narrative. You know, it was really just an effort to present one side of this story.
1: It appears that the OAS was acting on a script rather than on data.
2: Well we've seen this before, right? I mean, so in 2010 in Haiti, right, in that election there, and this was right after the earthquake in Haiti of the same year, there's still over a million people displaced, tremendous difficulties in organizing the election itself. And it was, as many predicted at the time, a very chaotic mess of an election where, you know, something like 20% of the votes were never even counted because of violence on election day, problems with transporting ballots, et cetera. And yet the OAS came in to the country to try and do an audit of this. And without doing any statistical analysis or any recount of the votes, they simply removed certain votes in certain places until they could change the results of the election. And so this is not something new. We've seen the OAS take these political decisions, right? And it doesn't mean that in every country, in every observer mission, and every action they take, that this is their motivation, right? But when you're observing an election and you're relying on this standard of good conduct and fairness and neutrality, uh, you know, it's not enough to be good most of the time. You can't have these sorts of exceptions where it's clear that standard procedures were, were not followed,
1: Well, why, with this kind of history then, would President Morales then submit to the verdict of the OAS?
2: Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, I think it's obviously a question that is best directed to him. I mean, it's difficult to sort of guess. I mean, I think there are a number of factors here, right? I mean, one is that many in the Bolivian opposition had pledged not to recognize the results of this election before a single vote was cast, so ahead of the vote entirely the OAS, and they were very, the Bolivian opposition, that is, was very critical of the role the OAS had played in the lead up to this election. Secretary General Luis Almagro had traveled to Bolivia and voiced support for Evo's decision to run for re-election, despite obviously that being quite controversial within Bolivia and elsewhere. And so you had the opposition very much opposed to the OAS. And I think there was an amount, a certain aspect of that where Avo trusted that this was going to be an impartial arbiter of polarized and political conflict that was happening in the aftermath of this election. And I think you know another thing that's worth pointing out here, right? I mean, we're talking a lot about this election now. Avo himself called for new elections and agreed to the demands of the opposition and to protesters to call a new elections. Now he did that the same day, earlier in the day, that he was eventually chased out of the country and overthrown. But He did do that, and there is now a process to hold new elections. This is, again, why this is so important, is to hold these actors accountable and to ensure that this is a fair process moving forward is the coup government will be holding elections at some point, or at least that is their state of intention. And so the questions about whether or not those elections will be happening in a, a fair environment, right? Uh, we've seen, you know, arbitrary arrests, detentions, state-backed security massacres, right? The, the situation is increasingly alarming. And so it's really critically important that there are neutral and independent observers for whatever process takes place. And given the OAS actions in the previous electoral process. Obviously, that raises significant concerns for
1: us. So as far as you're concerned, the OAS has ruled itself out as a neutral arbiter.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I think you have to sort of view everything happening with the OAS also in terms of broader regional dynamics, of course, because the OAS, you know, it is made up of member countries. Now, 60 percent of its budget does come from the United States, of course. But the member countries themselves are obviously important. And what you see is that, you know, this is not just about uh, re election and election in Bolivia, but also re election and election for the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, currently occupied by Luis Almagro, who has been extremely vocal and outspoken on many issues and has really been courting the regional right wing as well as the Trump administration. And so of course, you know, correlation does not equal causation, but you saw the United States come out in support of Almagro's reelection in the weeks after Morales's ouster in Bolivia. Right? So I think it is important to note that there are these sort of internal power struggles and games being played within the OAS right now as well. And obviously that has an impact on, on the, or- the organization's efforts all over the hemisphere.
1: Now, there was an attempt to create an alternative body to the OAS without the United States and Canada in it, but with the failure of several left-wing governments, that alternative body is not functioning as a true counterpoint to the OAS.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you saw uh, significant efforts to sort of form these regional bodies and entities without the traditional sort of powers of Canada and the United States and the hemisphere. And obviously those efforts have been significantly undermined in recent years. But I think, you know, again, this does speak to the sort of need for this. Right. And I think, you know, it's sort of inevitable that 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 will reemerge, you know, in the years ahead.
1: Now, from your contacts on the ground in Bolivia, do they feel that the situation is such that a real civic campaign, an election campaign, can be conducted in this kind of environment?
2: Look, I think there's hope, right? I mean, I think it's the only hope, right? I mean, you have an unelected government that has taken drastic policy changes despite not having a mandate to do any of those things. And so the sort of best case scenario here is to have an electoral process, right, and move forward. And I think from all parties are have an interest in seeing that through and doing that. But of course, you know, the situation gets more worrying each day. And I think it's critical that there are more eyes on the situation in Bolivia and, and what's happening uh, and more critical scrutiny of what has happened so that those things can be guaranteed moving forward.
1: And Evo Morales has taken himself out of the running. He's now in Argentina.
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, so he, you know, initially accepted asylum in Mexico. And in fact, he mentioned at the beginning of the summit questions whether or not it was actually a coup at all. I mean, I think if you look at his flight from the country and the real risk to his life and the diplomatic maneuvering that was necessary to even extricate him from Bolivia with actual threats on the ground, it really shows the sort of magnitude of of what was transpiring during those days, right? Now, he's since moved to Argentina, obviously closer to Bolivia, and where the MAS party, his party, has sort of nominated him to be the head of the campaign. So while he's not running as a candidate in the election, you know, he certainly remains politically involved in in the movement. But of course, that is also a threat. And so you saw the de facto government yesterday issued an arrest warrant for Morales on charges of terrorism and sedition. This is for basically being accused of urging his supporters to resist the coup. So these are extremely worrying situations. And while that might get the most attention, right, I think far more worrying is the situation on the ground now for activists, political leaders, etc., For example, one reason why it's been very difficult to get information about the election or to hear an alternative voice is that all of the electoral officials, five out of the six at least, have been held in preventative detention without being actually convicted of any crime. And the sixth one is in hiding. Now, what kind of an environment is that for an impartial investigation into what really transpired with that election? And this was an opportunity for the OAS to sort of provide that independence, provide that impartial view. Uh, And unfortunately, what we saw is that they, rather than sort of, providing clarity over the situation simply fanned the flames.
1: And finally, the U.S. role in this train of events. Yeah, well, of course, you know, when you're talking
2: about overthrowing government in Latin America, you know, the U.S. is always part of that conversation, right, and has been for a long time. I think, you know, you saw the Trump administration embrace the facto government immediately upon the overthrow of Alice and and give vocal support to the government since, again, despite serious human rights abuses and other very damning information coming out from human rights organizations about the situation on the ground. And I don't think it comes as much of a surprise that the Trump administration would be backing a conservative power grabs in Latin America. But I think what is surprising is that you've seen very little pushback from other voices in Washington, including the Democratic Party, right, where very few people have spoken out about what's happened or expressed concern about what U.S. policy might be in the region. Now, there is actual law, right, that the U.S. cannot be providing financial assistance after a military coup or a coup d'etat the military was involved in. But yet that hasn't been raised at all by anybody in Washington. And yet we've seen the de facto government meet with USAID, talk about bringing the DEA back into the country for more of the murderous drug war that we've seen fail time and time again over the previous decades. And again, so I think this is something that is going to continue to be an issue and continue to need more eyes and more voices speaking out against what's happening.
1: Yes, Bernie Sanders did express concern, but it was still a rather tepid response. Yes,
2: yeah, certainly, and there have been people who have condemned what what's happened. But I think you know what you see is right. There's there's an event, and uh, we saw uh, this very much so in Honduras in 2009, for example. There was a, a military coup there. The military kidnapped the president, flew him out of the country in his pajamas. Now. Then there was a member of Congress who was sworn in as president and a sort of civilian face to this military coup. We saw a similar thing in Bolivia. But in 2009, there was a real debate in the city about what had transpired and what it meant for U.S. policy. And yet today we see very little of that. And if you look at the OAS, too, right. So, for example, in 2009, the OAS actually voted to kick Honduras out of the atmospheric organization after that coup and refused to observe elections in a repressive environment under that coup government. And so you can see the differences in the hemispheric composition and how that plays a role in these various organizations and, and the actions they take when crises do erupt.
1: And that's very interesting because in 2009, we had a Democratic president in office whose administration was complicit in the coup and Democratic politicians questioning US policy. And here we have Trump, the Republican, in office, and most Democrats are saying nothing.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very, I mean, it is. It's sort of ironic, right? But I think, you know, it really speaks to the regional dynamics, right? And the region was a very different place in 2009 than it is in 2019. Right. And that is significant It's significant, not just for you know, those countries and the different the changes that have happened within them. But again, these sort of regional issues where you don't have a bloc in the OAS now who's willing to condemn what happened in Bolivia as a coup. Right. Despite, you know, regardless of what you think about electoral fraud or any problems with Morales's mandate, his previous election was not questioned and his term constitutionally. Is, uh, ends in January, right? So this was a constitutional interruption with the direct involvement of the military, right? I, I think anyone can see that that's a military coup.
0: That was Jake Johnston of the Center for Economic and Political Research in Washington.
1: The period of rabid anti-communism and red-baiting, often referred to as McCarthyism, actually lasted much longer than the career of its namesake, Senator Joseph McCarthy, and was deeply rooted in matters of race. Sharice Burden-Stelly is a professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carlton College in Northfield, Minnesota. She wrote a compelling article in Soul, the critical journal of black politics, culture, and society, titled Constructing Deportable Subjectivity, Anti-Foreignness, Anti-Radicalism, and Anti-Blackness During the McCarthyist Structure of Feeling. We asked Dr. Burden-Stelley, what was this McCarthyist Structure of feeling. That was
3: a sort of conceptual framework that I was using then. In my book that sort of builds on this article, um, I actually talk about the long deray of McCarthyism. But essentially, it's describing the same phenomenon. So McCarthyism describes a relatively short period from 1951 to 1954 when the um, eponymous senator of Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, was implementing his reign of terror. But essentially what I'm trying to argue is that The anti-communism and red-baiting and sort of imposition of un-Americanist on persons who oppose capitalism and racial exploitation has a much longer trajectory beyond McCarthy. And of course, one of the seminal figures in all of this is J. Edgar Hoover. And so for the purposes of this article, I essentially focused on the Cold War era in which I was Thinking about how different forms of legislation as early as the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938 and extending to even the sort of Communist Control Act of 1954 are all part of this broader architecture of criminalizing all sorts of formations, including internationalism, struggle for civil rights, labor organizing, anti-imperialism, militant anti-colonialism, criminalizing all of these things as un-American and as subversive, and also and being able to do so by construing them all with communism, but also by codifying them as anti-foreign, so that is to say fundamentally incompatible with the American way of life. And so essentially what I argue with the McCarthyists, so structure feeling is a, a concept that comes from Raymond Williams that it names the ways in which there's a pattern of thought, a pattern of sort of social realities that are extant, but that aren't necessarily informing each other or that aren't necessarily deliberately in conversation. But when one looks at all of these phenomena, they are related. And so this is what he calls the structure of feeling. So that is why I use that terminology. But to make a short story long, essentially what I'm arguing is that the only thing the U.S. hates more than Black people is (laughs) radicals.
1: Yes, the people who ran this Red Scare, you say, had West Indians as a particular target. They felt that mm-hmm. West Indian Black folks posed a special kind of danger.
3: Yes, what I argue on this piece is that West Indians are the sort of combination of the Black, the radical, as well as the foreigner. And so, of course, it is not it's not to say that all West Indians have radical politics, but rather dating back to people like Cyril Briggs and the African blood brotherhood, many of those persons have radical politics. And so insofar as radical politics are construed by the government to be foreign, there's a way in which that conjuncture of blackness, radicalism, and foreignness are embodied by West Indian people. And so We see the targeting of people like Claudia Jones and C.L.R. James as an enunciation of that conjuncture of blackness, foreignness, and of radicalism. But, of course, the quintessential case of this is Marcus Garvey. And, again, J. Edgar Hoover is interesting because J. Edgar Hoover actually came to prominence through his sort of prosecution and the ultimate deportation of Marcus Garvey. This is when he is an agent in the Bureau, like the Radical Division of the Bureau of Investigation. And of course, after that, he becomes very, very prominent and then continues this reign of terror against Blackness and radicalism through the 1960s. So Marcus Garvey, who is not a communist, but is targeted because of his radicalism, and his blackness and his foreignness is ultimately deported because he's considered to be sort of un-American, not least because his racial politics challenged the reigning episteme, the reigning racial order of the time.
1: Harlem in the 20s and 30s was a center of black politics of all kinds, including black radical politics. And you say that West Indian radicals, West Indian communists, brought a special internationalist point of view to those black radical discussions. Yes,
3: So you got Hubert Harrison, right, who was considered to be the father of black radicalism um, in Harlem. And then you got Cyril Briggs, you got Richard B. Moore later you've got Paul McKay, later on you've got Claudia Jones and C.L.R. James, who's not part of that. He's obviously not a communist, but he is a, a Marxist. And so one argument that I would say people like uh, Winston James make is that West Indians really are at the crux of colonialism, imperialism, and racism, insofar as they're under... so. The West Indies, for example, are under British colonialism. They're also subjected to U.S. imperialism. And then while the racial order in the Caribbean is not the same as the U.S., so it's not a black-white binary, by the time these Caribbean folks come to the U.S., they are subjected to the same racial logics as U.S.-born blacks. And so they have a particular type of consciousness that incorporates anti imperialism, that critiques class antagonism, that is very closely related to color in the Caribbean, as well as the racial terrorism that constitutes the United States. And so they have a very sort of robust and particular form of radicalism that is not necessarily unique to West Indians, but that certainly the West Indian radicals inhabit in ways that. U.S. Blacks don't necessarily have the same type of class consciousness because often the way in which U.S. Blacks understand our oppression is through a racial lens or through white supremacy and not always internationalist and not always with a class
1: critique. But, of course, Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were targeted viciously by the Red Baiters, were U.S.-born.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're also traveling in particular types of circles. So W.B. Du Bois, you know, as early as 1909 as part of the Socialist Party, and Paul Robeson is also, he never admits to being a communist, but he's certainly an explicit fellow traveler, as is his wife, as Londa Good-Robeson. And also they're internationalists. So the thing about Du Bois and Robeson is that they, from virtually the outset, they are internationalists in scope. They're traveling around the world and they're, observing the different forms of oppression that not only black people, but also workers as well as other racialized and colonized people are experiencing. And so this is very formative to their consciousness.
1: How long did it take and what forms did it take to make these kinds of black radicals, both foreign born and American born, subject to either deportation or the denial of their passports?
3: So somebody like W.B. Du Bois, as early as World War I, is already under surveillance because of his critique of the treatment of Black soldiers in World War One. And during the war, the crisis is considered to be a publication. So Du Bois, he doesn't join the Communist Party until 1961. And Du Bois' politics are interesting at that moment, not least because he produces this closed rank editorial, which has its own history. But nonetheless, he is under surveillance as a potential subversive. So in 1917. With respect to Paul Robeson, once Paul Robeson became more vociferous in his support of the international working class and of the Soviet Union and the capitalist foundations of racial oppression, he was targeted so there are many biographies of Paul Robeson, but one particular, Gerald Horn wrote in 2016, he mentioned how Robeson's income in the span of two or three years went from, this is in the 1940s, went from $20,000 to $2,000 because of the ways in which he was barred from performing in the United States. The cancellation of his passport disallowed him from traveling internationally. And so the surveillance is long and the punishment is swift. Claudia Jones, she was first arrested in 1949 and by 1955, she had been deported. Then you've got a number of people like Ben Davis who are hounded by the FBI, even James Ford, who is another sort of black communist and then William Patterson and these, and I'll see hunting, there's, uh, there's a number of them and they go to jail, they're, you know, they're in prison for various things but not least contempt of court because they refuse to name names. And so because of the dragnet of anti-communism, the refusal of people to name names or to hand over lists of people who have donated or to basically to be stool pigeons, they're imprisoned and harassed and assumed guilty for that. Because part of the way in which this sort of anti-radicalism works is built by association. And so if you name names, even if these persons are in no way affiliated with any radical organization other than having attended a meeting or donated a dollar. They are guilty by association. People are losing their jobs, they're being incarcerated, they're being brutalized, they're being deported simply
1: for association. Now, in this present era, and for the last almost 20 years, anti-Islamism is a hallmark of U.S. policy. But that doesn't let Blacks and radicals off the hook from the U.S. state.
3: It doesn't. And so one might argue that the foundations and the logic are the same, but, but who is targeted has shifted based on the sort of imperial and economic imperative. But certainly if we're thinking about today, state repression in the form of police brutality against Black people, the warehousing of undocumented folk in these ICE concentration camps, are all part and parcel of this new state apparatus or this new or reinvigorated security apparatus. And all of these people are racialized, right? All of these people um, saddled with this idea of subversion. So the illegal immigrant, quote unquote, subverts the economic prosperity, right? Black identity extremists subvert the security and safety of of the state. And then, of course, these quote-unquote terrorists, also, they menace the security and stability of the U.S. government. So it's the same type of understanding of otherness, of unbelonging, of legitimation of the use of extreme force or violence, but it just takes on a different form.
1: Now, this U.S. government policy of neutralizing, and that's to use a COINTELPO term, neutralizing black radicals by deportation or taking away their passports or other means, didn't just affect those radicals and their circles. It had the effect of promoting much more conservative black folks as the leaders and therefore had profound impacts upon black political structures at that time and to the present
3: of course. It's the conjuncture of the Black Scare and the Red Scare. So again, Gerald Horne. If you just read all of Gerald Horne's books, he explains all of this, right? Anyway, like, so he has a book called Black Liberation Red Scare that's about Ben Davis, but essentially what it explains is that the granting of civil rights happened in the Cold War context precisely because the United States Trying to win the quote unquote hearts and minds of the decolonizing countries, which are full of, of racialized people. And certainly they can't purport to be the, the champions of freedom and democracy while they're Jim Crowing and lynching Black people. And so the way in which they're able to grant a modicum of rights and recognition by the state is through the repression of labor and the more radical demand for, for fundamental redistribution and for Black flourishing. And so By crushing the left, they're able to let a few Blacks in, of course, Blacks who are under the, you know, who must be managed by the quote-unquote leaders, which you often call the misleadership class. The way in which they're able to be recognized by the state is by directing them from the more radical factions. Not only that, but also by moving the struggle for civil rights out of the international arena um, that is out of a sort of broader critique of capitalism and imperialism and and nationalizing it, right, making it about access to U.S. institutions and voting, which are important, but it's a much more narrow vision than espoused by persons like Du Bois and Robeson. And then if you got people who were initially on the left moving to the right, so you got people like A. Philip Randolph, right, you got people like Ralph Bunch and many, many others who disavow their radicalism in order to take on these positions of leadership.
1: And so these repressive McCarthy-esque policies didn't just result in the destruction of the careers of people like Robeson, but in profound distortions in Black politics overall.
3: I would say it sort of curtailed Black radical possibility writ law. So when you have Black radical insurgencies like the Black Panthers in the 1960s, there's already a repressive apparatus in place to crush them, right? And there's already a discourse of violence and danger against these these more radical formations who are simply trying to create better futures for not only for Black people, but for working people more broadly. And so what this sort of this taking up of Cold War liberalism, or of liberal discourse or conservative discourse does is that it creates only one path towards or one challenge to racism and white supremacy, a path that often leaves intact economic exploitation. And so then our heroes become Black billionaires and Black capitalists because the whole history of critiquing exploitation and expropriation becomes a race. So there's a whole epistemological aspect to it as well. But anyway, yes, yeah, so, so this taking up of Cold War liberalism and this accepting of the state's narrative of black radicals absolutely distorts, as you say, and circumscribes a whole nexus of possibilities for imagining a different
1: future. I think it's real interesting that you're saying uh, that these structures of repression of Black radicalism had been in existence for decades, and they were not called forth after the Black rebellions of the 60s. In other words, they weren't a reaction to the rebellions, but had been present for a long time.
3: Of course, right? Yeah, yeah. So the House Committee on un Activities, I think, is codified in nineteen, around 1946. But prior to that, you've got the Fish Committee, you've got the Dies Committee, you've got all of these other state-level committees, and then you've also got state-level sedition and anti-syndicalism acts that are meant to suppress Black racism, for instance, if, you know, the Angelo Herndon case. So this is not a federal case. This is a, a state-level case where Angelo Herndon, who is a Black communist, is arrested for insurrection. Many of these, their response to 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, but throughout the 1920s, there's all of these state-level sedition and anti-syndicalism, which is a form of anti-communism at the state level. And then at the end of World War II, after the U.S. has parted ways with the Soviet Union, there's more and more of a federal approach to ostensibly stamping out espionage and subversion and sedition, but it's really meant to reproduce U.S. capitalist domination and its racial underpinnings.
1: That was Professor Sharice Burden-Stelly speaking from Northfield, Minnesota.
0: Margaret Kimberly, a co-founder, editor, and senior columnist of Black Agenda Report has written a new book. Its title, "Presidential Black America and the Presidents, and examines how each of the previous leaders of the United States dealt with the black presence in the country. In doing my research, I realized
4: very clearly that our story is, is one that repeats itself with American history. In the first almost 100 years of the country, there was enslavement, and our struggle was to be free from enslavement. Although most presidents, there were 12 presidents who actually personally were slaveholders, and those who were not supported that system. So from the very beginning, the plantation economy was given preferential status, the fact that we have a capital city in Washington, D.C., the fact that they built a new city, there were already cities, Boston, Washington, Philadelphia, but the slaveocracy, as it was called, wanted to have a capital that was safely within their territory. So George Washington was inaugurated, then they moved further south to Philadelphia, then they built a city on a swamp, which makes no sense until you understand that the very foundation of this country was to defend chattel slavery. And after many decades of struggle, after the Civil War, where black people freed themselves, the Confederacy gambled and lost by starting a war, which Lincoln didn't want. Lincoln did not want to end slavery, In the last weeks of his life, he had a plan to compensate the South for millions of dollars. So after he was assassinated, then there was a struggle. And at that time in history, the Democrats were the white people's party, always uh, hoping for a Republican in office. Even when they won, these victories were hollow. We were betrayed time and again with some successes. The successes always came from our own struggle. Then finally in the the 60s, the um, liberation movement, we made great strides, the party switch. Now we are in a situation where it's the Democrats that we cling to and the Republicans who are anathema, who are seen as an existential threat and Trump being actually not the first openly racist president, but the most racist in modern times, with him in the White House, the fear, and I think the motivation is more fearful than, unfortunately, than anything else since Trump has been president, we cling to the Democratic Party, whose failures led to him winning in the first place. Hillary Clinton didn't do the very simple task of getting out the vote in these swing states. And he squeaked through in the Electoral College. And we are consumed with trying to get rid of him, this impeachment effort, which is a farce. The Republican-controlled Senate will not remove him. The Democrats don't really want to. They have given him everything he's asked for, from the Space Force to a trade deal, everything he wanted while they've made a big show of this impeachment which will not result in his being removed from office, while at the same time we see the state of Wisconsin is about to purge some 200,000 voters, almost all of them black people, one of those states that flipped and without which Democrats can't hope to win. But no one says anything about that, including black people. We are focused on getting rid of Trump, clinging to this corrupt party, which has failed us time and time again. So it's a litany, a sad litany of one failure, one disappointment, one stab in the back after the other for more than 200 years.
1: Well, what's different about the last several decades is that there is now a large black political class, but there is betrayal there as well. Oh,
4: there certainly is they have foisted Russiagate upon us, the Democrats, in order to excuse themselves for losing, in order to give themselves cover for their neoliberalism, to give themselves cover for their imperialism. They have manufactured Russiagate. So we see people like Maxine Waters, who was always one of the more progressive members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and several days ago she was quoted as saying, well, I don't have any proof, but I believe and I know that Trump colluded with Putin. So now it's officially a religion, and we have people who we could count on for years who are leading us down this path to greater and greater failure. The impeachment hearings, black members, one after the other, is referring to the will of the founding fathers, all of whom were slaveholders, all of whom created a hell on earth for black people. Now we have members of Congress singing their praises as they go forward with this theater, this impeachment sham. So we get it in all directions. We have one party that is anathema to us for good reason. We have another party which we hope will protect us, and it doesn't. And we have black elected officials who are bought off. In decades past, as we've discussed many times, there are always left-leaning Democrats, always, But when they decided to buy off black politicians the way they had white politicians, that has disappeared. And we now have black elected officials mouthing the same nonsense and taking part in the same betrayals against us
1: the front-running Democratic presidential candidate, Joe Biden, could easily be called the great incarcerator because he's backed every crime bill and mass incarceration bill in modern history. But he's getting lots of black support.
4: Yes, and that speaks to this situation that we find ourselves in, where we are afraid to even think about our choices. We are as a people, very risk-averse politically. And we don't want to back anyone unless we think they can beat the Republicans. So if we're told over and over again that a certain person is the front-runner, is the most electable, we will support them anyway. So even though Biden makes these incredible racist statements, I don't know if it's senility, his stories about black kids looking at his blonde hair, and they taught him about roaches. I mean, if it was something that Trump said, people would be very angry. But we have been convinced, or many of us at any rate, that he is the one who can beat Trump. Actually, he, I believe, would be defeated soundly. But that's the situation that we are in. We will not even take a look at someone who actually presents the policies we're most in favor of. I think we are still the most left-leaning. It doesn't Present itself always in the way that we vote. So if we're told Bernie Sanders is too left or he'll lose, but he's the one who speaks to the things that we need. And I, by the way, I'm not even a Democrat anymore. I'm a Green. But I find it interesting that we are still playing this role of, of supplicant politically. And someone like Joe Biden, who does everything we don't want who has bragged about locking people up, of course that means us, who loves war, who is clearly a a racist from his own statements, that people are reluctant to look elsewhere and decide for themselves who they would really like and whose policies really reflect what they want
1: to see in the country. In your book, you spend some time with Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican of the party of Lincoln, who at the turn of the 20th century invited a Black person, Booker T. Washington, to dinner. He later said it wasn't dinner and it really wasn't a sit-down. But a century later and more, Black folks finally were in the White House as residents and you spend the most time in your book with barack obama
4: yes it was very funny teddy roosevelt who was a very racist man but he was also a philanthropist and he thought his you know this noblesse oblige from you know one of these old money families and booker t washington was one of the people who depended on people like him and so he invited him to dinner and he didn't think anything of it but there was a firestorm of protest Washington proved himself to be a hypocrite. He was always telling black people that integration wasn't important. But when he got the invite, he went. And the opposition was so fierce. The The White House wasn't didn't have an official name. It was called the president's residence, the executive residence. And Roosevelt actually declared that it was going to be called the White House shortly thereafter. That's how awful the response was. But then we get to Barack Obama being in the White House, and black people were deliriously happy. I think it's fair to say that he had strong, very, very strong support to this day, even though he's been out of office for several years, in part because many of the attacks against him were racist, were obviously racist. So even people who stopped to think and wanted to question would quickly circle back to being in his corner. And what did we get in his term in office? We got nothing. This is the man who bailed out the banks. Black people lost what little wealth we had. Most of it comes from home ownership. And the uh, real estate bubble bursting and the Wall Street crash decimated us financially. But we got no help because of our support for him. He was very dismissive of black people he was, he, and still does scold us and constantly finding ways to criticize us as i said he is still doing that but the love for him and the comparisons with trump the man who is our nightmare of course it couldn't be more dark but this is all we have to look for was love of him of seeing him and his family in the white house that kind of representationalism that actually does mean quite a lot to people but Obama didn't didn't even care if Democrats won. While he was in the White House, Democrats lost more than 1,000 seats across the country in Congress and in state houses. They just gave them up. And the only thing left was the presidency. And they screwed up and lost that. His effort to get votes for Hillary Clinton amounted to jokes about Cousin Pookie, this imaginary lazy black cousin who tell Cousin Pookie to get off the couch, wouldn't vote. That's all it amounted to. And people who loved him didn't love Hillary Clinton, so some of them didn't come out. And Trump made up for those votes Republicans weren't getting because he was racist. That was his appeal. And he also said things. He was lying, of course. He said the Republicans would be the workers' party, and that's supposed to be the Democrats' line. That should have been Hillary Clinton's line. He said he would save industrial jobs, which he never was going to do. That ship had sailed. So he was able to peel off more votes, and he ended up winning. So after eight years of loving Obama, the the banks that had made our lives a misery being bailed out, after seeing uh, Muammar Gaddafi murdered and his country destroyed by Obama and his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, we got nothing. And then, even worse, ended up with Trump. And three years have been wasted There's been no analysis of what happened. The Democrats have very skillfully used propaganda with the help of the corporate media in deflecting blame for this debacle that they presided over, blaming uh, the Russians, Hillary Clinton, continuing to reappear without accepting blame for her failure, her personal failure. And so we have black people defending the FBI, defending the CIA because they are supposed to save us from the evil Donald Trump. And our interests, we don't even talk about our interests. We don't even dare to ask, to think, to question how things could be different or what we ought to have. We have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk our politics down to nothing, where just any blue will do, as they say. And too many of us go along with that. And Joe Biden, who is a train wreck, who would lose should he get the nomination, is still preferred by people who operate in this state of fear.
1: At the heart of American exceptionalism is this idea that the country itself is part of a grand experiment that is moving towards redemption of that initial promise of all men are created equal, and that despite slavery and Native American genocide and all the other atrocities of the nation's history, that promise is still out there. But after all this time, it's never redeemed, and we get Mass incarceration under Democrats and Trump under the Republicans.
4: Yes, so the experiment is, I mean, the experiment's done. We have this country that is true to its roots of conquest, of settler colonialism, of enslavement. The subjugation, the physical control of black people is always high on the agenda. It can be through slavery, it can be through Jim Crow, it can be through mass incarceration. And at this stage in history, as capitalism simultaneously becomes more powerful and yet is weaker at the same time, we are at a very low point. We have to broaden the way we think about democracy anyway. We get to vote, but that does not a democracy make. There have been studies that show even when the person or the party we want wins, we still don't get what we want. So we have a system that literally does not give us what we want, but we insist on calling it a democracy. And during these impeachment hearings, it was constant democracy, 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 which we don't have. We have a sham. And we have politicians, including black politicians, who owe their positions in office to corporate interests, to wealthy people. And the last thing they want to do is represent us and give us what we need, which in a democracy is what they are supposed to do. So living standards continue to drop, where half the population is low wage. People literally cannot survive on their incomes, where people can't afford, even if they have some kind of health insurance, they dare not use it, or, you know, the cost of college or the risk of darting out one's life in debt because of student loans, the cost of housing. So we are, by every measure, life for Americans is getting worse and worse, and yet we insist on talking about this democracy we have that has been subverted by Vladimir Putin, who we are told is an evil man, bent on taking over our country. And I just want to laugh because they talk about these uh, clickbait ads on Facebook, and we've been convinced that they were used to tell people not to vote. And they spent $45,000. And these were Russian nationals who did many of these things. There's no proof of any connection with the Russian government. So they spent $45,000, half of it after the election. So Vladimir Putin is evil, but is, you know, says, I'm only going to spend 40 grand. It's, it's only worth. That much. But that information, those little factoids, have been kept from people. And the propaganda that we have, and that is also proof that we're not in a democracy. We have a corporate media that works with powerful interests. Giving us information is the furthest thing from their intention. And it all works to make sure that we have a most undemocratic country with people who suffer and a system that does not relieve that suffering, and uh, the main mode of information being a a group that works hand-in-hand with the people who are creating the suffering.
1: Well, you spent a lot of time digesting the political biographies of all of these U.S. presidents. What kind of taste did it leave in your mouth?
4: (laughs) Well, you know, I thought I knew a lot before I started researching the book, and it's even worse than I thought. None of them were good. When you know people talk about who was the best president, I now realize that it's an issue of who was the least bad. Even those who were told did good things, they were good for black people, as my parents and relatives used to say. Even they were racist. Even FDR, who was beloved, he was always in league with the segregationists. He was, and he always used them as his excuse for not. Passing anti lynching legislation, for example, or, or, or other things. So, all of them were not good for us. The black people have made the greatest strides when we act on our own volition and when we, as a mass entity, make demands of the system. That is what helps us, and not any of these people in the White House. Any improvement in our lot has been in spite of them and not
1: because of them. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.